CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Here we are. It's another Political Rewind Tuesday, a little bit after 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Thank you all for joining us for the show. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, before we get started, a couple quick notes. I want to continue for at least the next few shows to remind you that on August 12th, Monday evening, August 12th, we're going to take the show out to Augusta, where we'll be doing the show in front of a live audience at the Jesse Norman School of the Arts. And we would love to have you come out and join us. So please just go to politicalrewind.org. You'll find a link there where you can sign up for tickets. They're free, but we ask that you register so that uh, we make sure we have a seat for you. And come on out. That show will record on that Monday night, August 12th. It'll air on Tuesday at 2 o'clock, continuing our tour of the state of Georgia, which we've been making really for the last few years now, and we haven't been to Augusta, so we're looking forward to being out there. One other quick note, uh, because I don't want to run out of time to tell you this, uh, tomorrow, given the Robert Mueller hearings, which we'll certainly be talking about on the show in a few minutes, um, we're going to turn over the program day pretty much entirely to NPR. So rather than hearing Political Rewind tomorrow, uh, assuming that by then it looks like the schedule is such that he may have just finished up his second hearing, which is the Intelligence Committee, sometime after two, we're going to uh, give way to the uh, political insiders at NPR, and uh, you'll hear from them. We'll be back uh, on Friday, and to whatever extent we need to talk about the hearings and how Georgia members performed in those hearings, we'll certainly do it. All right, let's get going. Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC. It's Tuesdays. This is a day that we always look forward to having you in the studio. Uh, thank you for being here today, Mr. Riley. It's always great to be here, Bill, and I hope the folks from NPR can carry the day tomorrow. I yeah. mean, uh, they're not like the crew you can usually get in here on Wednesday, so let's hope they can pull it I'm off. I'm a little worried about them. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, uh, who is your Washington correspondent, uh, is uh, with us as well. Hi, Tamar. How are you? Tamar, do we have you there? All right. Well, we'll we'll try to get Tamar in. She's on the phone in Washington. Uh, Melita Easters is with us in the studio. Melita Easters is the founder and the executive director of the Georgia Win List. I'll let you say what the mission is, Melita. I always do, but your turn. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Our goal is to elect women in numbers and pro-choice Democratic women, and we've been quite successful. Yeah, we're going to watch uh, very closely how the uh, women you've recruited for the 2020 cycle are going to do in the elections. We also are joined by Martha Zoller. Martha joins us from the studios of WDUN, where she is back after a stint with the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, to doing her daily radio show. It's great to have you with us up there in Gainesville, Martha. It's, it's great to be back, Bill. All right, we're going to get, and now I understand Tamar Hellerman. Are you there, Tamar? I am. Thank okay. you for having me. I you missed my lovely introduction of you. I'll do it again. I Mar- heard Hallam. all of it. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, well, I, I, hadn't got, I actually hadn't gotten to the lovely part yet because I couldn't hear your voice. But thank you, Tamar, for joining us. And we are going to get to you pretty quickly uh, about uh, what's going on up there with the Mueller hearings. But before we do, uh, let's start, Kevin, th- about a month ago now, ACLU, on behalf of a number of organizations, uh, pro-choice organizations, filed their lawsuit in which they lay out their case for why HB 481, the anti-abortion law, which Governor Kemp signed at the end of his signing period, why it's unconstitutional. That's now been assigned to a district court judge, and we know it's going to take a while before it makes its way through district courts, appeals court, and possibly the U.S. Supreme Court. So they've taken ACLU the next step, and they've announced it today, which is? They have sought an injunction to keep the law from going to an, going into effect. It's not supposed to go into effect until January 1, but given how long it will take to be resolved in the courts, it, uh, they filed the injunction. And this is just mirrors what's gone on in other states. Everybody's sort of following the same process. 
And eventually, uh, I, I, who knows what will happen, but I, I think there's a pretty good chance we get a ruling at the Supreme Court sometime in the future. Yeah, Melita, there's no reason at all, given that in every other state where, where these cases have been challenged, the judges have granted these injunctions. But one of the things that makes it more significant than just an illegal step is this feeling that perhaps women, and for that matter, others who have an interest in in the the need for an abortion, might think the law is already in effect and might already be hesitating to go into a clinic. There's a great deal of confusion about when the law would take effect, and there are young women who were even basing college choices about which states have what kind of abortion laws because they don't want to have um, legal ramifications to an unwanted pregnancy. So having the injunction granted will give everybody a chance to breathe deeply and make better decisions. Martha, uh, what all of this means is that this issue is going, and as if it hasn't already informed the 2020 election cycle, it's going to get even hotter and hotter as we move into the actual year of the election, isn't it? Yes, and I expect the injunction will be granted and that we, this may go on for very long. And if we know anything about the Supreme Court, if it gets that far, they wait for the very controversial cases till the end of the session would be the end of June which would be extremely hot and heavy if that's if that's what ultimately happens but again you got to take this step by step this was an expected thing that was going to happen today this is no big surprise uh, just that they waited about a month but I think in light of kind of the turmoil that Planned Parenthood has had and other parties to the case that uh, waiting a month is probably not that surprising. Yeah, I think I hope I hope I didn't mislead lead you into a direction that maybe um, you're not completely comfortable with. We really think before the United States Supreme Court hears this, we could be facing months and months and months oh, yes. of appeals. Oh. So it's it's a, the appeal process is likely to be underway or or close to it during the election. SCOTUS yes. is not likely. It's going to be longer than uh, it would 2020. probably be. 2021 before it would reach the Supreme Court. So we have uh, uh, two guests here who, who probably have uh, points of view to offer on if this is continuing to be fought about, you know, legally and otherwise and talked about um, as we head through the 2020 election season. I mean, what do you think its implications are? Does it help Democrats more than Republicans? Does it help Republicans more than Democrats? What what will really happen? And I guess we, we I'll ask Martha first because she's uh, she's there. Martha, take a shot at that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's unclear at this point in time. Clearly, among um, the base and the Republican Party, uh, having an issue like this is going to help motivate getting people to the polls. But again, those bases, whether they're on the left or the right, they're hard to define these days. And so knowing exactly what the, what the impact's going to be, as a pro-life woman, you know, it's going to be something that will, will inform the people that I talk to. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it'll be, it'll be a challenge throughout the election cycle, no doubt about it. And it's something people are going to be watching. I think um, that among those who believe in reproductive freedom, it will be a huge motivating factor. And we may see the kind of sweep Democrats saw in the northern arc suburbs. I think we'll see that continue because women are very, very motivated, very energetic about either running or helping women who are running. But I think we may begin to see some flips in the southern suburb um, districts as well, you know. Um, but, uh, but one quick point is, as you know, as you all of you know, those those first reelections when you have had a, you know, I'll use your words sweep. I don't know if that's what I would categorize it as, but um, that first reelection is always the most difficult. Whether it is the fifty seats in Congress that are going to have to be defended this time, or it's the seats in the Georgia House, that first, that kind of. <laughs> In those swing districts, that first re-election is the most challenging. Ask yeah. Karen Handel about, you know, about that Absolutely. from the last cycle. But there were 15 flips last year from Republican uh, and, to Democratic in Georgia. So let me, uh, Tamar, one of the things that's interesting about this issue, uh, I think, in this conversation is uh, virtually every poll, including uh, the last time the AJC uh, did a poll, that included a question about abortion. If, if you ask people about a total ban on abortion, 
uh, they or w- would you support SCOTUS overturning the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade? By a very large percentage, people say no, they wouldn't support that. When you start asking people a, a bit more nuanced question about whether they would like to see uh, abortion remain legal but with additional restrictions, then the numbers start changing, which suggests maybe tomorrow that as this comes into the election cycle, that the Republicans who passed this bill maybe overplayed their hand to an extent by not just adding a couple of restrictions here and there, but going all the way to essentially outlawing abortion in Georgia. Does that make sense, uh, Tamar? I think it, you know. I think you're right. It depends on the way that you word a lot of these polling questions. You're right when you say, "Do you want to get rid of Roe v. Wade?" It's something like seventy percent of voters say, "No, no, no, no." But then once you start talking about heartbeat laws, which you know you're, you're talking about limiting abortions after six weeks, things start to change. You start talking about late-term abortions. A lot of the numbers start going, you know, the other way. So I think there is some room for Republicans to operate, and and you're seeing a lot of the messaging, at least up here on Capitol Hill, is focusing. On on things like late term late term abortions, um, because it does, you know, that that is an issue where there is more of a, a gray area, and you are able to win more voters. Yes, you're he- also seeing you're also seeing a lot of people focusing more on the Alabama law. Um, which outlaws it in most cases, I believe, much further than what Georgia did um, it, when we're talking about abortion on a national level. It's kind of a more extreme example, but it's something that, that Democrats are using to, to make their point. Yeah, um, Melita, Alabama did basically not even make exceptions for life of the mother, rape, for rape or, or incest. incest. Yeah. But, but again, to go back to this point, yes, you may be able to run for Congress on the question of whether we should have more restrictions, but Georgia law has now, whether it's it's put in place or, or held by the courts, these legislators have to run on essentially a ban on abortion. They do, but you know, you see even on the the right to life crowd, one of the big Georgia groups has sent breakup letters, so to speak, with all the people who voted for the bill because they wanted a ban on rape and incest. So even those who oppose reproductive freedom have nuances within their ranks about what opposition really means. All right. Um, Martha, I'll give you a last word on this if you'd like that, and then we're going to move on. Well, I mean, I think you can see by the discussion here that there's this is still a very emotional issue for a yeah. lot of people, yeah. and um, and it's gonna it's if you look at the numbers, I mean, Georgia's still bringing lots of jobs here. Lots of things are happening. A lot of the things that were the doom and gloom that was predicted after it was passed haven't happened yet. So I think that what we're going to see here is that you know we we got to get into 2020 because I can tell you one thing I do know predictions made a year and a half out aren't right so we got to see what happens as we get closer <laughs> all right thanks for that um tomorrow let's move on to you your, your beat's a little bit busy this week tomorrow what the only uh, good thing to say is that by friday they're all going to clear out and you can what go to the beach for a while <laughs> She's got Sunday copy to produce. Oh, what are you Sunday about, copy. Billy? Oh, I forgot. I wasn't supposed to say that in front of your boss. Hey, okay, so let's talk about, Let's. we're going to talk Mueller in a minute. But before we get there, it, the White House and uh, congressional leaders made their budget deal overnight. They, it, it, the, the president had been saying that he wanted significant cuts in the budget of I don't remember the figure that he wanted. You may have it at your fingertips, but it, he wanted hundred fifty billion. Hundred fifty. Yeah. Thank you for that. And instead, he agreed to a one point seven trillion. I mean, a budget that would increase by what one point seven? It's up to one point seven trillion, something like that. So, it, go ahead. It would be a three hundred billion dollar deal over right. two years. That so that's would in take addition a, to the current spending limit. Right. So yeah, it, you'd be spending about. It's usually about $1.4 billion okay. a year on the budget. Thank you for that. Uh, this is why you're a reporter and I'm just now a talk show host. Uh, you know your f- facts. Uh, so, all right. So on one side, you've got the president agreeing after saying he didn't want any increase in the budget to take this big, big additional bite out of the apple, which will increase the deficit. And Republicans have completely lost their claim to being a party of fiscal responsibility. Okay. On the other side of it, you've got the Democratic leadership 
have, having agreed, they wanted increases, they're happy about some of the increases, but they also agreed that the debt ceiling would be uh, taken off the table th- through 2021. So they took away a power that they had uh, to use in negotiating with President Trump all the way through his first term and maybe into the start of his second term. It feels like everybody lost a little on this. Am I on the wrong track? Not only that, but but Pelosi is expected to face some heat from some of her progressives because she agreed that she wouldn't put so-called poison pill um, riders into these bills. So, so these are normally, um, you know, directives to federal agencies saying you can't use federal money to do X, Y, or Z. So, for example, over the last year, Democrats have been trying to force federal agencies that that they won't spend any money on building Trump's border wall. Um, This handshake agreement that Pelosi made with the Treasury Secretary basically is taking that off the table. So what are people saying up there tomorrow? Why did both sides come together and decide to move forward with this? I mean, clearly, we, we should point out that President Trump has not... We don't know for a fact whether he's actually going to sign this thing. There's going to be a strong conservative pushback, and we know the president pays close attention to what Fox News and others are saying. Uh, so there's always the chance he may not want to sign it. But what, what's, the, what's the theory as to why everybody got together and decided to make this happen? Because they want to take this issue off the table as the presidential election heats up. Um, you know, the, there could be a fight in September to shut down the government, and then there could have been a fight, a big fight in September 2020, right, when everybody really is focusing on getting reelected in the House and Senate, when Democrats' presidential nominee is really going to be going toe-to-toe against the president. And I think there was really an interest to, to not have a, a fiscal meltdown, you know, potentially defaulting on, on the debt in addition to a government shutdown while all of that was happening. So this kind of clears the, the decks for that. Martha, I, th- I think I'm right to say that while while you have an audience for your show that is diverse in its political thinking, you certainly, because you are a relatively conservative uh, thinker yourself, you probably have a great number of conservatives who listen to the show. Are they happy? Are they are they are they deficit hawks? Are they worried that the president's uh, spending too much money here, continuing to add to the deficit? No, they're not happy at all. I okay. mean, it's it is still um, a you know, it is a frustrating thing when we continue to show how broken the budget process is. But I bet the Democrats are sorry that they walked away from the infrastructure meeting because it seems like the president would have given him the two trillion dollars for infrastructure <laughs> because he's a he's a big spender and he's a deal maker. OK. And and while he has done a lot of good things for the economy and that kind of thing, he has spent a lot of money and Democrats and Republicans have spent a lot of money under I was looking at just about in every president we've doubled the debt whether the Democrats or the Republicans have I mean since Reagan whether the Democrats or Republicans have been in power so the budget process is broken but this from a political standpoint takes this off the table so they aren't having these fights because even though Democrats generally think that Republicans lose when there's a government shutdown Everybody loses when there's a government shutdown. So this avoids that also. Let, let's be a little careful. It is certainly true that in his first term, President, o, President Obama ran up enormous deficits. We were also in one of the deepest financial crises that we faced as a country. During... Well, and I was talking about debt, not deficits. Okay, so, yeah. we, we ran up debt. Uh, he was able, actually, to produce in his second term some balanced budgets, which is kind of a remarkable thing. So, uh, Kevin Riley, one of the things that your, uh, your uh, reporter there in Washington pointed out in uh, a piece today is David Perdue, one of the great uh, believers in fiscal responsibility voted for this deal. That was interesting to me. Right. I actually think it's going to be interesting to see whether the extreme wings of both parties uh, create trouble on this or not. It looks like they've decided not to, but uh, on the uh, certainly on the Republican side, Jim Jordan, who's one of my favorite characters uh, in the House. Um, uh, you know, I, you wonder if you're going to hear hear from that group. But I, what I have to believe is that both sides like other issues during next year's campaign. They they don't want to fight over this one. They must be more comfortable with with the issues they have. And we know what the president, you know, what which issues he likes to highlight. And I we'll see what the Democrats come up with. But they don't want to highlight this one. Melita, how do Democrats look at this? I think they're choosing to pick their battles in a different direction. Well, it's essentially what Kevin is what, saying what about Kevin both said, sides. And I think, 
you know, there will be other ways to make their points without the sword of a budget shutdown looming over both parties. Tamar, did... did, um were you surprised by the Purdue vote? I mean, after all, he has talked over and over and over again about reducing spending, about being fiscally conservative. Well, first, a housekeeping note: he hasn't cast any votes yet. He he just. I mean, he supported it. Thank you very much. Thank and, you. and he actually has not said outright that he will vote for it because we still have not seen text of the agreement. Maybe there are details in there that could change people's minds. But he did sound positive notes about it. Um, you know, on the, on the one hand, I'm surprised because he he really has kind of, uh, you know, created this image for himself as, as being a, a deficit hawk and talked a lot about wanting to overhaul the budget process. But at the same time, you know, he's talked a lot. He's on the Armed Services Committee and he talks a lot about how short-term uh, stopgap spending agreements, um, which is what Washington has been running off of lately, how damaging that is to the Pentagon, and he's absolutely right. It, it really does hamstring decision-making, and so he, I think he, he saw this as a way to kind of sidestep a lot of that, but he's also, you know, he's running for re-election next year. You know, in the government or the governing majority in the Senate, you don't want that hanging over your head. And also, you know, his, uh, his big ally in the White House helped cut this deal, yeah. and he's running as, as somebody, you know, with not a lot of daylight with the president, so yeah. I don't think he wanted to have that. Yeah, yeah. thank you. The Senate, of course, has not taken up this measure yet, but Purdue has signaled his support. Martha, David Purdue, in terms of conservative voters, is he bulletproof? Is this sort of this isn't going to trouble even the deficit hawks out there, or is it going to well, trouble him? Well, you know, I worked for him for yes, almost five years, and and no, I don't think it's hurting them with him. They're not going to. I mean, you know, first of all, he's not going to have a primary cha- challenger, or most likely not going to have one. Right. I don't think any of these voters are going to go to the Republican, to the Democrat side, I mean. And I do think that one of the things that are that that he's got in his favor uh, is the fact that he did put together a budget proposal. He was unable to get it to the floor for a vote, but he's done a lot of work related to a new budget process. And even though he hasn't been successful as of yet, um, you know, he's going to run on the fact that he's still the outsider and he's still the guy that is trying to trying to to fix this if you'll reelect him and i think he i really think he's got a good shot but i know we'll talk more about that later yeah um i wonder if he was able to extract a promise from the president to at some crucial moment in the campaign the president would send a tweet well the last time (laughs) well and the last time i spoke with senator purdue i asked him you know that question not about the tweet but about how you know, everybody says we can't make the kind of spending changes we want to make unless it's a second-term president. We were told that for Clinton's second term, which he was fairly successful, Obama, Bush, you know, all along. But the real structural changes that need to be made in the budget, it's going to have to be a second-term president or a second-term senator that's not going to seek re-election that's got to really push that. And Senator Perdue is a term limit guy that says that he is only going to serve two terms. So we'll see. And he answered me that that is what he expects to happen, but we don't know. All right. Uh, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way because we have another big Washington story that we want to talk about. That, of course, being the Mueller hearings, which start at, I think, tomorrow it's still scheduled. He's in front of judiciary at 830 tomorrow morning. Is that correct? That's right. Good. Uh, we'll talk about that after we take our first break of the show. This is Political Rewind. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, sleep disorder specialist Guy Leshner, author of The Nocturnal Brain. He's seen it all. Insomnia, night terrors, narcolepsy, sleepwalking, sleep eating, sleep driving, and something called sexsomnia. We'll talk about his cases and discuss the growing body of research on our slumber. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. We're back on Political Rewind here in the studio. Uh, Melita Easters, the uh, founder and director of the Georgia Win List. Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, our regular Tuesday partner on this show. 
Uh, Tamar Hallerman joins us by phone from the Washington Bureau of the AJC, and Martha Zeller is out there. Your studios are, they're not, are they Gainesville that the studio itself is located? Yes, I'm in Gainesville, the okay. heart of the 9th District. Um, so very quickly before we get into Mueller, you know, Martha, you've been on both sides of the of this uh, whole political world. You did your radio show, you went off, you worked for David Perdue, you worked for Brian Kemp after he was elected. How are you feeling about being back in radio? Are you enjoying yourself? Yeah, I really am. It's a lot of fun to be talking to people again. Um, and I did that uh, with Senator Perdue and Governor Kemp. But it's great to, you know, get out and hear what people really think and and uh, I'm having a blast. I really am. Well, Thank good. you. Good. And we're really happy that you've uh, started joining us for, for this show uh, when you're able to do that. All right. Uh, tomorrow? Tomorrow's the big day. Where are you going to be to uh, watch these uh, hearings? Obviously, you can do it. You can sit on your computer in your apartment and watch if you want to. But wh- wh- where's the right place for a Washington uh, uh, correspondent to be for these hearings? I'm going to be plunking down on the house side of the Capitol, watching all of it from afar. Um, you know, I being in the room, there already there's like a lottery for tickets. Yeah, not a lottery, sure. but but kind of a one ticket per outlet, like just very crowded. I'm focusing mainly on the three Georgia lawmakers who sit on judiciary. So I'm able to live stream it on C-SPAN and then run to the House floor to grab the lawmakers when they come in to vote. So I think that's going to be my strategy for tomorrow. Riley, are you perfectly happy with what your correspondent is going to do? Handle how <laughs> well, she's doing? As, as you both know, I was, I was up there about a month or so ago for a hearing and uh, while I've always been an admirer of Tamar's, and she's, I believe she's one of the hardest working people on our staff who does one of the hardest jobs on our staff, on that day I realized it was even harder than uh, than I realized because she had to try to cover me during that hearing, yeah. and it was it's yeah. it, there's it, they don't make it easy. All right. Uh, uh, let's talk about the. You just pointed out tomorrow you're going to be watching the three Georgia members who will be part of this. That means on judiciary. Uh, Hank Johnson, Lucy McBath, right? And the ranking member who we're really going to be paying a lot of attention to, Doug Collins. Before you give us some uh, insights about Doug Collins and how you expect him to perform, because you've now posted a piece updating a profile of him with a, a little bit about what he said about tomorrow and how he intends to deal with the hearings. He talked to Maria Bartiromo on uh, Fox News on Sunday morning, and here's just a little bit of what he said to her about how he feels about the Mueller hearing. Well, what we're expecting is another round of what we already know. I've told some people before, it's like going back and finding a book on the shelf that looks new, and then all of a sudden you begin to read it, and you find out, wait, I've already read this before. And I think that's what the American people are going to find. But really what's happening here is it's the Democrats' time to make the case that they've not been wasting our time and millions of dollars in our committee hearings and clown and farce uh, hearings going on where they're just harassing the president, going after things that we've already known, and just trying to make press release headlines instead of legislating and trying to govern our country. This is really what this sums up for them this week. So, Tamar, what are you expecting from Doug Collins, who has become the president's biggest defender on judiciary? And, and that's exactly the role that, that he's going to be playing tomorrow. He's going to be kind of the standard bearer for the Republican side. And, you know, they're, they're going to be cross-examining Robert Mueller, basically. You know, he's talked about how he really does not want to go beyond the boundaries of the report he came out with this spring. Um, but they're going to be not only questioning everything he says, but also trying to look into the origins of the probe. You know, how Mueller picked his prosecutors who helped him with all of this and their intentions behind it. Doug Collins has repeatedly called multiple members of Mueller's staff. He, he calls them, quote, the corrupt cabal. Um, and, and he's talking specifically about, um, you know, Lisa Page, Peter Strzok, uh, a bunch of other people who were the, the, uh, tw- the, the, the text messages between the two yes. uh, lovers who uh, uh, the text messages reveal uh, weren't much of fa- big fans of President Trump, of candidate Trump. Exactly. So what he's going to be doing is he he wants to show that there was an anti-Trump bias on behalf of Mueller's team and how, um, you know, the the initial moves that that Mueller's team was making to get these um, these search warrants and stuff from members of of President Trump's campaign team, um, how given those intentions, it shows that, um, you know, the whole probe has been tainted. So um, there has been, Martha, some uh, 
you know, sort of, I don't know, fighting is the word, but certainly debate among Republicans up there as to whether they should be aggressive in the way that Doug Collins sounds as if he may want to be or, uh, in attacking him or in un- trying to undermine his report or whether they ought to simply sit back ask a few relatively gentle questions and let the whole thing vanish as quickly as possible, yeah? I don't think it's going to vanish as quickly well, as possible. Well, you know, I mean, okay, if, right. If the past informs what's happening. But before we get to that, is, is, it, is, is the one thing I can never get past on this whole discussion from the beginning when we learned about the text messages between those two was that they were high-level FBI operatives, and they were sending this stuff in text messages. <laughs> I find that to be just amazing. But anyway, I I think they will take a different path. Um, And I don't think you're going to see attacks, but I think you're going to see hard questions. Uh, And I think you're going to see Mueller perform as Mueller will perform. I mean, everybody's waiting for him to lose his cool or to say something he shouldn't. But they don't know Mueller. I mean, he's not a guy that's going to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's the challenge, isn't it, for Democrats? Uh, uh, They're going to have to, Melita, figure out a way to try to extract from him a little bit more than what he was taught, what the report says. And he's already said, I don't want to do that. He won't lose his coup. But I think for Mueller, this testimony is his lasting legacy. And does he want the work of his entire staff to go into a footnote of history? Or does he make those dry prosecutorial legal words on the page leap off and into between the ears of the American people through his demeanor, which is a very button-down, red-tie, um, tailored suit kind of demeanor. But he, he has played that very straight and narrow all of his career And this is his perhaps last time in the congressional spotlight. So does he let loose just a little bit and preserve the legacy of the hard work his committee did? Tamar, Hank Johnson, I think it gets to uh, Democrat, of course, on the committee. He's one of the early Democratic questioners, I believe, isn't he? Yeah, he's a senior member of the the committee now. He's a subcommittee chairman, so he'll be questioning uh, the special counsel quite early. And on the one hand, you know, Hank Johnson's one of the most liberal members of the the Georgia delegation, but he's he's very much, you know, followed Nancy Pelosi's lead on this particular impeachment question and said that he doesn't see enough right now to to open impeachment proceedings, but has also talked about wanting the investigation to run its course. So it'll be interesting to see what exactly he's trying to get from Mueller. If it's going to be more about making a statement of his own, kind of asking open questions and seeing where, where Mueller himself goes. But but I'll be watching him closely, as well as Lucy McBath. You know, she's a, a junior member of the committee. There's not going to be a ton of time for her to ask questions, but she's in a, a huge swim, swing district yeah. in the North Atlanta suburbs and under a ton of pressure right now from, from both sides. She has not called for impeachment either, and I do not expect that to change anytime soon. Well, and that's a great point, Kevin, that Lucy McBath, you know, Hank Johnson's out there in a, in a district that's relatively safely democratic. It is safely democratic. <laughs> you know, but you're now talking about Lucy McBath in what is, is trended democratic, but she's got to be careful. She's got to watch her back in terms of Republican influence in the district. So how where does she play her cards on this one? Well, I think it's hard to know, and, and I also think that speaks to the larger issue of how well organized will this Democratic effort be to draw the story out in a way that will resonate with the public and change minds, because each one of those legislators has their own agenda to worry about and you've heard, you know I've seen stories that there have been there has been all kinds of preparation but I mean if you go back to the Kavanaugh hearings there was a fair amount of depending on how you wanted to view it and what your view of Kavanaugh was in the end a lot of it was disconnected questioning that didn't seem to lead You know, anywhere. that's an interesting point. Tamar, I, I had never even thought about the way that Kevin Riley just described that. I, maybe you can help us with this. Gerald Nadler, the chair of that committee, has not struck me as a guy, and maybe behind the scenes it's happening, 
who would, in fact, work toward organizing an order of questioning among the Democrats as they come forward to ask their questions, he's always felt to me like he's a lone wolf sort of operator. Am I wrong about that? I mean, we've seen reporting saying that that he, behind closed doors, has urged Pelosi to open an impeachment inquiry. And she's kind of said, no, 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 we're going to keep going with the investigations and and win over public opinion first. And so he's he's adhered to her vision. So we've seen that so far. Based on a lot of the reporting I've seen, though, it, it sounds like they really want to let Mueller kind of paint the picture. And even if he does just stick to the script and read a lot from his report, they're hoping that all of the live cable news coverage, all of that circus, I think for a lot of Americans, it'll be the first time that they're really hearing a lot about the Mueller report. They're hoping that that'll be enough to kind of feed public anger and kind of turn the tide against the president on this. So I want, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Martha. With all the preparation that, that both sides have made, the one thing you can't factor in is is what do those members see when they look in the mirror? Do they see the next speaker when they look in the mirror? Do they see a presidential candidate at some point in the future? Do they see a run for U.S. Senate? Whatever it is, the one thing you can't factor into all the preparation is what are those individuals' future plans? What do you think I'd Doug like Collins think sees? On, you know, I, I think that Doug is, um, uh, you know, obviously there has been some talk about him running for different things at different times, but I think at this point in time, you know, he is looking at when the Republicans take back the House, which, you know, again, that first reelection is always the most difficult. And the, at some point in time, the Republicans will take back the House and he will be positioned to be in a place of very high leadership. OK, Melita, uh, it strikes me that if you were on that committee, there are a couple of key questions. I'm certainly not the only one who suggested them, but they're worth talking about a little bit. One of them you might want to ask Mueller is um, why did you decide not to subpoena the president to, to testify? Uh, and the other might very well be, if he were not president of the United States, would you have indicted him for obstruction of justice? Do those stand out in your mind as two that you were hoping for? Or do you have others? Oh, no. Those are, those are great questions. I think it will be very interesting to see how well Lucy McBath's staff has prepared her for this moment in her spotlight. She did get a great deal of attention earlier in the year with a gun bill and with some testimony about guns. This is going to be a real effective way for her to show that she is more than a one-issue congresswoman. And so I think letting the world see the smart side of Lucy that many of those who supported her saw when they endorsed her campaign is going to be an interesting opportunity for her. Kevin, what, do you, what are the questions that, I mean, if I, if I hit on two that everybody's talked about, and, and but there are others you want to ask, um, how do you want this to proceed? No, not whether you have a partisan bias, but just what you hope Mueller can clear up for us. I like the question, and it's been posed in a number of ways in another, a number of publications that I read, which is basically re- repeating what the president has said about the report, that it there was no collusion, there was no obstruction, that it was completely cleared, and asking Robert Mueller, is that what you believe? All right. Uh, I think that will be the moment in all right. the hearings. All right. It's, this is going to be... Uh, tomorrow, before the show began, Melita Easter said she thought this may be one of the most watched hearings uh, since Watergate. And I, I, you know, will watch to see what the numbers are across all the various platforms on which you can watch. But there's no doubt there have been few events on Capitol Hill since Watergate that have uh, struck the kind of drama that this one promises to. Totally. Spellbinding is the word I used when, you know, the Kavanaugh hearing happened with, uh, you know, last summer. Um, and, and all of Washington kind of came to a halt as we were watching this thing. That, you know, no, none of us were even pretending to get other work done. And I expect that's what tomorrow is going to be like. Um, look, taking a step back tomorrow, I've, I've been in D.C. a long time. I've become such a cynic. Um, I, I really liked what Martha was saying about kind of looking at the individual ambitions of each of these, these lawmakers. What do they fancy themselves? Or, or are they just trying to get, you know, through the next election? Um, but for me, I think a lot of them, they, they want to get their flashy press release for the next day. They want to be able to show that they were really tough to the special counsel or that they got something really interesting out of him, even if 
you know, the, the last 10 questioners before him or her also asked the exact same thing. People want that tweet. They want that press release. So <laughs> I think we're going to see a lot of repetition, but that's the way these things go. All right. It's going to be happening tomorrow. As I said, the hearing, the, he appears before Judiciary and the Intelligence Committee, both in the House. He starts his testimony at 8.30 in the House Judiciary Committee. And uh, we're told he has a brief opening statement before the questioning begins. He's uh, expected to do three hours in front of the Judiciary Committee. That's the deal they struck. Take a half hour for a lunch break and then begin a two-hour period of questioning in the Intelligence Committee. And as I said, we will be presenting NPR's coverage, live coverage of both of those hearings throughout the morning and afternoon tomorrow. So please uh, join GPB Radio throughout the day, anywhere you are in the state, to uh, hear great coverage of the Mueller hearings. Got a lot more to talk about on this show. We're going to bring it back home to Georgia. We'll do that after the break. Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck, or RV? GPB's vehicle donation program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. We'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's 877-472-1227. And thanks so much. Solar energy has taken off across the U.S. Now, Nashville native Jason Carney wants black communities to know the energy savings and the green jobs are yours to be had, too. No one controls the sun. You know, if someone could, they would, but they can't. Right now, all you need is knowledge. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, spreading solar in Nashville. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Before we uh, turn to our next topic, a breaking news story. The Wall Street Journal moved a story just a few minutes ago. President Trump has sued the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee and New York State officials seeking to protect his state tax returns from being turned over to congressional to a congressional committee. Uh, a further effort by the president to keep his taxes under wraps. He's already... Uh, the the his administration has already fought congressional efforts on his federal tax returns, refused to turn him over. Uh, New York State thought they were going to get at his uh, income uh, statements through a state effort, and now he's uh, suing them for that. So that's a story to pay attention to as we move forward. Melita Easters, you have uh, ter- Teresa Tomlinson running for the United States Senate uh, against. Uh, other Democrats who are jumping into this race, only really we only have one other official candidate, Ted right. Terry, at this point, but we expect a couple others to get in. And uh, Tomlinson yesterday uh, decided that it was time to release a few policy positions. Uh, the one that caught everybody's attention was her call for to support the federal uh, uh, effort to uh, legalize uh, recreational and medical marijuana. Uh, it's an interesting move on her part. Uh, is the time right for that? Are Georgians ready for that? I think increasingly Georgians are. I, I know of families where there are perhaps elderly parents with arthritis pain or whatever, and family members arrange on trips to bring back the cannabis gummy bears from Colorado. Or So I think the medical use of marijuana has made um, a big window of opportunity for for that. I also think that the idea of so many families have suffered tragedies because of tainted street drugs. And so I think the appetite for a regulated market for these products that ensures a level of pharmacy grade safety is also a big thing in a lot of people's minds. Well, Kevin, she uh, she makes the point that one of the things about recreational marijuana that that if we were to legalize it, if Congress were to pass a bill uh, m- making it legal across the country, is that it would uh, 
be important for the African-American community where punishment for possession continues to adversely affect African-Americans over uh, white uh, offenders. So, I mean, she, she backs it up with a social, socioeconomic argument. Yeah, I mean, I think that where she's headed on this thing is just a question of timing, whether or not this is the time or how soon the country, the state will adopt these things. I just think it's odd, and I'm curious to see what Tamar thinks about this, that this would be the first thing, more or less, that she put out there. I guess it's not really the first thing, but it's a major announcement yeah, early it, on. It, there were several there policy were several, papers. Yeah. This is the one which captured the, one the attention of the eye. press. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she, she had to know what happened. She, that, she had to know that's what would happen. Yeah, I, I, be, Martha, before we get Tamar uh, to, to weigh in on this part of it, it there are those our, our, our friend Eric Erickson uh, wrote a piece the other day uh, for Resurgent, his uh, web publication in which he said that Ted Terry, uh, the mayor of Clarkston, who's now announced he's running for the Democratic nomination for Senate, is the best gift that David Perdue ever had because he's going to push everybody to the left. Ted, of course, in uh, Clarkston, decriminalized marijuana and he is a pre pretty liberal. Uh, political leader out there. So, Martha, it is. I thought it was ironic or, or perhaps intentional that this announcement by Teresa Tomlinson comes after Ted Terry jumped into the race. Maybe, maybe Eric Erickson is right that Terry is pushing people to the left. Well, primaries always push people to the extremes um, in the parties, and she wanted to take. You know, if from a strategic standpoint, she takes this issue away from him by saying this. I don't know if he was going to talk about that or not. Um, he's a compelling guy. Um, he's got a lot of charisma. Uh, I've met with him on a number of occasions and or talked with him on a number of occasions. And, you know, I think it'll be interesting to watch. The biggest challenge about any of these discussions, there, we talk about the money and the incarceration and that kind of thing. But we also need to look at it from a medical standpoint where we need to get, if we're going to do this, we need to get marijuana into a class two drug phase, which is what you'd have to do on the federal level so that the right research can be done about dosage and that kind of thing. Because the big thing that physicians are afraid of, you know, that um, if it starts being used for pain relief or something like that where you go through your doctor to get it, um, you know, they need to know how to dose it. They need to know who's liable. They need to know a lot of those other questions that in this litigious society that we are in. And so all of those questions are not answered just by making it yeah. by decriminalizing Thank you it. for saying that. Tomorrow, where does an effort in Congress stand uh, to pass a federal law that would legalize or at least remove marijuana from the, uh, uh, dr the, the class, class of drugs one. that include yeah. heroin and, and other drugs that we know to be uh, incredibly dangerous? What, what, where does this all stand in Congress? Mm -hmm. We are nowhere near that. Let me nowhere. You, well, I, I don't is, mean, I, I know you're not so close, close to passing it, but where sure. does the movement to do something soon stand? I mean, the effort, Congress has been so far behind the ball on this. You know, five years ago, I was at a CQ roll call, a, a very Washington-based publication, and they were just starting to take the first votes on, on the House floor about whether to stop um, Justice Department raids um, on dispensaries in, in states where it's legal. So, so they were so far behind all this. We're just now starting to see movement in the Senate on, on kind of legalizing more research and more money for hemp production because it's Kentucky and that's where Mitch McConnell is. People aren't really starting to talk yet about um, taking it or, or changing its classification under the Controlled Substances Act. And Maybe you'll see a little bit more if Democrats maintain control of the House, but at least right now with Republicans in control of the Senate, I don't see much movement. I mean, we're more likely to see uh, in these criminal justice reform plans that the Democrats are all going to be coming up with, I mean, Biden announced his, that the penalties for you know, this drug stuff are likely to be, you know, pushed to be drastically reduced, but it's not the same as getting it out there for medical purposes and really regulating it in a way. It just it, it just does something about the mass incarceration. Well, and, 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 and Teresa's plan called for some review of people who've already been sentenced yes. under old laws. Yes. And that's a very fair way to look at things. Um, but I think you made a good point, Martha, about research on dosage levels and some of those things, because the different strains of 
marijuana, as I understand things, being grown in different parts of the country have vastly different levels of the active ingredient. Um, Ke Kevin, Jim Galloway thinks that Tomlinson, without regard to whether she's trying to move to the left of Ted Terry or not, Galloway thinks this is a bid for the votes of younger voters, which I think is an interesting question. Yeah, I, I mean, she's got to do something. I mean, we talked earlier about David Perdue being a very formidable opponent. We know he's <laughs> going to be well-funded. So, I mean, I think we wait and see uh, how Teresa's fundraising goes, uh, who else jumps in the race, and um, maybe all of these things will are part of a pretty good, smart strategy that we just might not see quite as clearly yet. It, it could also be a reach out to the agricultural community. I, I remember in my teenage college years that there was a family not too far from my family's farm where there was a whole lot of pot grown in South Georgia soil. You could literally smell the pot half a mile down the road when they cured it in the old-fashioned tobacco barns after growing it in between rows of corn. I so, mean, Melina seems to be quite an expert on this subject. No, I'm not an expert, <laughs> but I, I mean, I remember how much my, my daddy enjoyed reading the paper when those boys down the, down the road were curing their pot in the tobacco barns. So the agricultural industry in Georgia might be quite ripe for adding marijuana as a crop. They could grow very well in our climate. Well, we, we should point out, since we talk about uh, hemp in Kentucky, that, that Georgia legislature uh, passed a, uh, a bill this session which does allow for hemp to be grown in Georgia, which some people are worried is a first step towards marijuana cultivation. I, I'm just, I want to throw something out as part of this conversation, and this is uh, without regard to whether we're really going to see a federal effort to uh, legalize marijuana or at least remove it from a class one status. I was struck a number of months ago, as marijuana is legalized for recreational purposes in a number of states, and maybe Robert can find it and post it. Malcolm Gladwell, who I think of as a relatively liberal thinker, uh, wrote a piece for The New Yorker last January in which he really knocked down this notion that marijuana is as safe as we all think it is. And it was an extensive, in-depth piece on all of the reporting on on just how much concern we ought to have about making marijuana broadly available, which speaks, I think, Martha, to what you're suggesting, which is we need an awful lot more study. Be, e even if the state of Georgia were to think about it, uh, Tamar points out feds aren't anywhere near it. This is an issue that's got to be looked at very closely before anybody wants to move forward. No, and I mean, even at uh, one of those those huge lunches at the depot during the session, this past session, that was what the speaker was talking about, something similar that we just, we don't, we haven't done the research. We don't know what's going on there. Um, but, you know, I, I don't deny, and of course it was a moving thing when, when Governor Kemp signed the bill that expanded some of that uh, availability and the children that came. And, you know, I don't think anybody is denying that a child is not Medic, taking the yeah, results that oil. they're getting, the medical Ma cannabis but it's it's still a long way to go right. between there and here and there. Martha, as a radio show host, you will appreciate why I have to now cut yes. you off. Our show is about 30 seconds from going off the air. And I do want to have enough time to thank you, Martha. Thank you, Kevin Riley, for your Tuesday participation. Uh, Melita Easters and thank Tamar you. Hallerman up there in Washington. What a great day you have ahead of you tomorrow. Thank you all for being here for Political Rewind. Uh, we will be back on Friday for another show at 2 p.m. See you then. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.